Day 44 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, today we are beginning a new book, the book of Leviticus, and God is going to start to lay down the law. Now, we got to remember the Israelites are still at the base of Mount Sinai, so it picks up right where we left off in Exodus, and they will remain here for another year throughout this entire book. So, we've got the tabernacle that's been built, and now the sacrificial system can actually be put into place. Now, we've got to remember, keep this in mind, this is a sinful and rebellious people. So, by implementing this system of sacrifice, It's actually an act of mercy and grace by God to even allow them to reconcile their relationship with Him. So if you find it difficult to read through this book, just keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what I always say. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you'll be okay. We're going to get through it together. Because remember, the whole point is to look to Jesus as our ultimate sacrifice. And of course, as always, we'll be reading from the ESV by Crossway translation. Now, also in celebration of the three books that we have completed so far, Holly has created a graphic that you can post to your stories if you're interested. I've already got it in my stories, so you can just screenshot it, or you can screenshot it right here, right now. And don't forget to tag us at HeartDive365 or at HeartDive Podcast, and we're using the hashtag Read the Whole Bible in 2024. So that would be a really great way for you to nudge your friends to come along in this journey with you. Otherwise, let's go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts for the reading today. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now that we fully understand what that means, you have rained down manna on us, Lord, by giving us your word. And we're so grateful for it, that it nourishes us, that it gives us everything that we need to sustain us throughout our days. And so I pray, Lord, that you will nourish our spirits today. We invite you in, Holy Spirit, for your presence to dwell within us today, God. We love you so much, and we're so grateful that you are even willing to be here with us because we know that our righteousness could never match up to your holiness. Yet you pour out your grace upon us and your mercy every single morning. You make it brand new. So we're grateful for that today. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Anything that we have done that has stopped short of the line that you've called us to, or maybe where we have stepped over across the boundary line, or even when we have tried to force or manipulate a situation, forgive us for that, Lord. And I just pray that we will rely on your guidance alone and that we will trust in you and your provision and your guidance and everything that you are doing, knowing that it is for our good and is not for our destruction. Help us also to have the capacity and the willingness to forgive others as well. We love you so much. Please keep us from temptation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the book of Leviticus doesn't have anyone named as the author, but most scholars believe it is written by Moses sometime around 1450 to 1410 BC, written while they were in the wilderness, the audience being the original Israel, but of course we are the audience as well. And this would have been during their time at Mount Sinai. And the purpose of this book is actually means pertaining to the Levites, because you see here the root word of Leviticus is Levi, and it is how to be holy. It's God's law. It is the central book of the Pentateuch, and we will see both apodictic laws, which are just simply God's commands, or we will also see caustic laws, which is case law, where if this happens, then you will do this. But again, the whole purpose is how to be holy, and we will also see festivals, purity laws, and how to live out our walk on a daily basis so that we are pure, and also how the Israelites could attain atonement and forgiveness 
of sins. With Moses being a prophet of God, this word would come from God through Moses for his people. And it was centered around God's desire for fellowship with his people. So that's another thing to keep in mind that when God lays down a law, it is so that he can maintain the fellowship and that closeness with his people. Because if they don't follow the law, that's the further away that they are getting from God. And he knows that he wants to keep them in those boundaries. He wants to keep them in the fence that is going to protect them and allow them to live their best life. Because we've got to remember that these laws are being given to a redeemed nation. They've already been redeemed. But ultimately, what these laws will do will point to the fact that no one is righteous. No one is able to uphold this. And so ultimately, they will need a savior to be able to come and be that ultimate sacrifice so that there would be no need for all of this in the end. So let's start off here in chapter one. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So this word offering in Hebrew is korban, which means that which one brings near to God. So the whole purpose of this burnt offering will be so that the people could reconcile their relationship back to God. This is the whole purpose of the sacrificial system. So starting off in verse three, this will be the offerings that will be required for those who might be rich, who actually have herds of bulls. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. So this burnt offering would be only one that is fully consumed on the altar, pointing to Jesus on the cross. And of course, as a worshiper, all must be laid down in sincere worship. So every person who brought a sacrifice brought it for themselves alone. The New King James Version actually says that he will offer it of his own free will. And so what would happen is they would bring it to the tent of meeting, to the entrance, and they would lay their hands on the head to atone for the sin. So what does that mean again? That means they are transferring their sin to this animal as a substitute for their sin. So one life for another. And this animal will be the payment that is made for their lives and for their sin. So everyone had personal responsibility, just as we're all responsible for our own salvation. You know, no one can get us into heaven by praying for us or accepting Jesus's payment at the cross. We have to make that decision on our own. And no one can grow our relationship with Christ for us. So going to church or coming to Bible study, those those are all wonderful things, but it shouldn't be the only time you're spending with the Lord. You know, the prayers that we say here, those shouldn't be the only ones you're praying because there's a difference between corporate prayer and personal prayer. It's kind of like the difference between going out on a group date and then having a personal one with the person you're either dating or your spouse. Your relationship is going to grow the most whenever you spend that alone time with someone. So heart check. Are you actively participating in your relationship with Christ, or are you relying on others to put in the work for you? Verse 5, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So let's look at all of the requirements here. It must be a male without blemish. And of course, we know Jesus was without sin. And why a male without blemish? Well, these would have been the animals that were prime for breeding. They were the most highly valued animals. And that means that it was a real sacrifice for the people. This was the best 
best of their best. And they would have to, in a sense, pay first or make that atonement first and then be able to enter into the sacrifice. And so then they would sprinkle the blood on the altar. What does this symbolize? Well, basically, if we remember that life is in the blood. So this would have been the most important part because the lifeblood on the altar declared the substitution of the animal for the person. Now, this term here before the Lord is actually going to occur 60 plus times in the book of Leviticus alone. That's more than any other book in the entire Bible. And this sacrifice was to be made at a specific place in a specific manner as laid out by God. So there was no shortcutting or doing it your own way. And if we are living sacrifices to the Lord, then we are ultimately living our lives before the Lord every second of our lives. So that'll make you think twice about what you do. But does it? Heart check. Do you live your life in constant awareness of God's presence? Are you able to put everything you do, both good and bad, before the Lord? Verse 6, Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, your translation may actually say an offering by fire. So the fact that it says food offering, this does not mean that God has eaten it up, nor does it mean that anyone is eating it for that matter, because burnt offerings would be completely consumed on the altar. Now, I circled here the fat. There was both a practical and a spiritual reason behind this. The fat, if you think about it, have you ever grilled a bunch of ribeye steaks with all of that fat, and then suddenly you have like a 20-foot flame because the fat is dripping down into the fire, creating more ignition? Well, that's what the fat would serve as. They would put it on the wood so it would act as like lighter fuel. But fat was also considered the most prized portion of the entire animal. Verse 10, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. So this would have been the animal that the middle class would have brought. Anything from the herds, the sheep or the goats. The only difference between this one and the bulls would be that it would be slaughtered on the north side of the altar. Now, why is that significant? Well, Calvary is actually north of Jerusalem. Verse 12, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 14, this would be the sacrifice that would be allotted for those who are poor, who maybe couldn't afford something from the herd or the flock. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. So those are the only two types of birds that it could have been. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, anytime this pleasing aroma to the Lord is spoken, that means that the Lord accepted the sacrifice. Now, if you are an animal lover, 
I know that reading through this probably has you either mad or sad or just plain disgusted. You're probably even asking why, why the need for this? But let's bring it back. Because remember, God made it very clear from the beginning that sin would separate the people from God. And that wasn't enough to keep them from their sin. So in implementing this sacrificial system, this actually shows his love for us. You see, he doesn't want to be separated from his children. Having to carry out these sacrifices would hopefully sensitize the people, like bring them back to their senses and make them see the seriousness of their sin. And it would hopefully remind them of the holiness of God and the reverence that is required before him. By bringing an animal of great value, it would prove their sincerity and their commitment to reconcile back to him. So it would have to cost them something. And I thank God that Jesus paid that price for our forgiveness. But our sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, it's still going to cost us something. It's going to cost us our own desire to sin. It's going to cost us our selfishness, our pride, greed, time, devotion. And it should, because He's worthy of it all. And when we devote ourselves as a living sacrifice, we are laying it all down. So heart check. Have you laid it all down? Are you truly sacrificing your life for the Lord? So now here in chapter two, we're going to see the grain offering. So typically a grain offering would follow a burnt offering. The purpose of the grain offering would be to show God honor and respect, to give him thanks and to honor him as the provider. So this would have been a meal offering. This would be an offering that is actually eaten. Now, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. Now this term fine flour means that it would be free from impurities and fit for a king. It was to be taken from the best supply of the worshiper. You see, this is where we get the term put on your Sunday best, because at one time it was required for us to dress up for church. And while we know that Jesus accepts us just as we are and wardrobe matters none whenever it comes to the state of our inner being, I wonder if we've actually diluted this idea of God's holiness and His reverence. Have we lost sight of bringing the best version of ourselves to church? And I'm not talking about a fashion competition here, but each person presenting themselves as fit for a king. I mean, think about the events and places you've been. You know, we got proms, weddings, date nights, even church conferences where we will make the best effort to go shopping and look our best. We'll get our nails done. We'll go to the salon. We'll get our makeup done. We'll buy a special dress all for one day or one weekend. And then on the flip side, we can also look at it as, well, we might feel so comfortable before the Lord because He is such a good God that we can wear sweatpants in to his house, the way we do with our best friends, knowing that we will not be judged. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Heart check. Should we still be wearing our Sunday best? Have we diluted the idea of God's holiness? Or has the idea of his holiness been expanded by his grace? Now, my personal thoughts is that this is really just something personal, and we really shouldn't judge anyone based upon what they feel is right. So if someone decides they want to wear their Sunday best to church, we don't judge them. If someone shows up in sweatpants, we don't judge them because God doesn't do that. He wants us to come as we are. But it made me think about it today as I was reading this because he's still the same God and he had requirements back then to meet his holiness. And so I thought to myself, man, where did we stray from that? I don't know. Just something to think about, you know? 
take a step back from your original thinking of what this means and just kind of like chew on it a little bit. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. So oil would have been olive oil. This would have been symbolic of both blessing and prosperity back in this day. And whenever we think of oil spiritually, it typically represents the Holy Spirit. So this makes us think that everything we do, especially when it comes to worshiping, should always be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And frankincense, remember, is the incense, the scent that is offered up to God. And this is representing our prayers. And frankincense was actually an imported luxury. It was a costly oil. If you've ever ordered doTERRA, you know what I'm talking about. This is one of the most expensive oils you still have to buy. And it was from Southern Arabia and East Africa. Verse two, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion. So notice the word portion. That means that part of it is burnt on the altar. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So obviously not a food offering to be consumed by humans because you don't want to be eating the frankincense, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So Aaron and his sons would receive the rest of that offering as a part of their provision. This portion, these grain offerings would actually be a huge part of the meals of the priests. So while they're kind of the visual beneficiary, ultimately these sacrifices, these offerings are given to God himself, and the worshiper is actually depositing this into heaven. So anytime we worship or bring an offering or we sacrifice something, yeah, maybe we'll see somebody who receives the benefit of that, but ultimately you are putting a deposit into heaven because you are offering that to God, who is the giver of all rewards. So any labor you do here on earth will never be done in vain. Verse four, when you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. Why unleavened? Well, remember, leaven typically represents sin in the Bible. And another reason, though, could have been that leaven was considered the life force of the vegetable kingdom, just the same way that the blood is the life of a person or an animal. Or another school of thought is that Leaven and honey mixed together would have caused fermentation, so that may be symbolic of corruption. Verse five, and if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. So we saw not only a baked version, but now we're seeing a pancake version baked on a griddle. Sounds delicious. But the makeup of it is still the same in the same way to be offered. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, so I'm thinking more like cornbread, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Now, the coolest thing that I could find out of this, the three different versions of the grain offering, is that God allows us to worship Him in so many different ways. There are so many different avenues of worship that can be presented to Him as a pleasing aroma. Verse 11, no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. So there we 
we see the introduction of honey. Remember, I just said that leaven and honey together create fermentation, but also honey was actually a favorite sacrifice that was given to pagan gods. So this could have been one of the reasons why God was like, no, honey, I don't want my worship to look anything like those who are surrounding you. But if you've got any thoughts or you read something in the commentaries that you are sourcing from, let me know what the significance is of no honey. Verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. So let's stop here on salt and what the symbolism is of that. Well, in the Middle Eastern countries, any contract that was made, many of them were actually sealed with salt, which would represent strength, permanence, and truth. Now, when we think of the practical application of salt, well, salt is one of the purest elements that you can find. So that could represent the purity of the covenant. And number two, it is a preserving agent. Anytime you salt something, you actually prolong its life. And so this could represent an enduring covenant. And then third, it would have been a luxury back then as well. This was expensive. So again, our offerings or our sacrifices are going to cost something. It also represents friendship and grace and small things matter with the grains being so small, it can do such a wonderful thing to flavor up food. And not only that, but it does have healing properties in it as well. So ultimately the salt in this offering would be a reminder of the covenant. And even in the new covenant, Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth, to be the kind of people who are bringing purity to wherever you go, who are helping people to preserve Preserve their faith to become a friend of God. We season our words with grace. We help people to find healing through Jesus, who is ultimately the salt of the earth. So you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Verse 14, if you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. Now I'll put a big old question mark because I'm like, what's the significance of this crushed new grain. It's got to be something. Well, if we think of Jesus as the first fruit, we can also look at the fact that he was crushed on the cross, right? And so I didn't dig too much into that, but I would love to hear your thoughts or if you have any kind of scholarly information about the significance of the crushed new grain of the first fruit, but also the fact that it is roasted with fire, all of these sacrifices and offerings. We oftentimes think of fire as those fiery trials that we will have to go through. Anytime we decide to be a living sacrifice to the Lord, when we devote our lives to Him, we are going to go through those times of trying. But the beautiful thing is that it is through those trials of fire that we are actually strengthened. We are purified. We come out even better than before if we go through it in faith, walking with Jesus through it. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Now, just the same way that God allowed for birds to be brought as an offering, He does the same thing with the first fruits of the grain because anyone would have been able to offer this. Some people may not have been able to offer the other type of grain offerings. Here in these last couple of verses, this would have been known as common food, so they could have brought this 
to the Lord as a grain offering. And now we move on to peace offerings in chapter three. But before we even begin to read it all, let's understand what a peace offering is. So the peace offering was not to make peace with God because the burnt offering already did that, but it was to be able to enjoy peace with God. So the Hebrew word for peace actually means wholeness or completeness, soundness and health. And peace is something that we as humans are always longing for, Christian or not. And the further we get from God, the further we will actually get from real peace. So it makes sense that anxiety in this world is at an all-time high. There is actually a lack of peace in society, and nothing can complete us the way that Jesus can. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the perfect peace offering. He's the only one who can give us fellowship with God, which is the only way we will ever be whole or complete or sound or truly healthy. So, heart check. What are you seeking to bring peace and wholeness to your life? Is it a person? Is it trying to get away from a person? Is it more money, a new job? Are you looking to the wrong thing? So these peace offerings would have been for expressing both gratitude and also being able to maintain fellowship with God. So this offering was actually eaten by the worshiper, whereas the grain offering was eaten by the priest, burnt offering not eaten at all. And it was offered after the burnt offering, just the same way that we repent first, we come in gratitude to God, and then we can fellowship with Him. Verse 1, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, so notice that's different, it can be a female as well, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. So again, without blemish being the best of the best, but also looking to Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering, the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Now, with the fat being the most prized possession... We look at the kidneys. The kidneys back then were actually viewed as the seat of emotions. And the liver would have told the future in pagan cultures. Of course, this is forbidden in Israel. And so they are actually going to burn the liver to say, y'all can't use this anymore to be able to tell the future. And then the fatty lobe would have been symbolic of their reliance on God to be able to guide their future. And I believe that information was found from the Enduring Word commentary. Verse 5, then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood of the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. So it seems as though the person would have to give the death blow, but it would be Aaron and his sons who would do the dirty work of actually cutting up the animal and making sure that it's arranged properly. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord, it's fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail. And by the way, fat tails of these animals, I found out, could have weighed up to about 60 pounds as the tails of certain species were actually made almost fully of fat. 
cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, Then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it, as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering, the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma." All the fat is the Lord's, a.k.a. our best is His. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. So fat is not only representing the best part of the animal, but also the fact that it is stored energy. So again, we too are called to give our best of both ourselves and our energy to God. We know there are obviously practical reasons of not eating the fat of an animal. God also declaring blood not to be consumed by humans. This could have been because this was one of those things, again, that these pagan cultures would do in their own sacrificial rituals is they would consume blood. They would drink blood. So wrapping it up once again, the burnt offerings were completely consumed on the altar and only a portion of the peace offering would be burned while the rest would be given back and be eaten by the worshiper. So in a sense, this was a big old barbecue pit when these offerings were being roasted. And this would have been a time of feasting and celebration and fellowship. And we too get to celebrate what Jesus has done for us through communion. We've actually been invited to dine at His table. And whenever we realize that He is our peace offering, there is no sweeter joy than knowing that we get to partake in the greatest feast ever. Chapter 4, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt upon the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. So, what does unintentional mean? It either is going to mean I didn't know, or I didn't mean to do it, or it could mean that it is sin being done knowingly, but in weakness. So not outright rebellion, because the word that is used here for unintentional comes from the root word, which means to wander or to get lost. So this would be someone who knows that what they're doing is wrong, but they're not doing it with a shaking the fist at God sort of way, which in Numbers chapter 15, we will hear about presumptuous sin, which would be that. And the fact that the anointed priest is the one who is doing it, this would hold an even greater weight because of the fact that his sin is now going to affect the entire camp because he represents the people. So his guilt is now weighing upon them as well. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. So the fact that he has to bring a bull again shows the seriousness of this because this would have been one of the most expensive animals to have brought. 
And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So it's being done in front of the Holy of Holies. Seven times, remember the number seven represents completeness. And the priest shall put on some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So why is he having to place blood on the horns of the altar? Well, because sin, of course, affects our prayers as well as affecting our relationship with God. And all of the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all of the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. So again, the best part of the animal being offered, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the shall burn them on the altar of burn offering. But the skin of the bull and all of its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood on the ash heap. It shall be burned up. So the fact that this is being burned up is showing that it's being burned completely and they are not going to be able to partake in any part of this offering. Now, taking the sacrifice outside the camp was a sign of complete removal from the community, the memory the stench, all of it would be removed from the camp and disposed of completely. You know, sometimes we can forgive a sin of another, but we fail to remove it completely from memory and we will still hold people to that whenever something jogs our memory or we will do it to ourselves where we will get something right only to be dragged backwards whenever we catch a whiff of it again and we fall prey. So there may be some things in our lives that need to be taken outside the camp and completely disposed of. So hard check. Is there anything that is still lingering in your camp that you need to take outside? What about something someone else has done? Have you let it go from your memory? Verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the whole thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it to the front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be killed before the Lord." Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and all of its fat he shall take from it and burn it on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. So same case with this one, it would be taken outside because of the pollution of this burnt offering due to the sin that they have now transferred to this animal. And we can also see the significance of it in Jesus as our sacrifice, who was taken outside of Jerusalem to 
to be crucified at Calvary. Now, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. So, leader here would have been civil leaders. So anyone who's not a religious leader. So this sin would be considered not quite as serious as the priest or those in the assembly. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all of its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people, so this would be anyone who did not hold office, sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt of or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish. So notice the difference here is a female now for his sin, which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. So the fact that it is a female, remember that the male were the ones that were the most prized. So once again, you can look at this and say, maybe this isn't quite as serious. I mean, sin is sin no matter what. It all requires a payment. But there are some sins that require an even greater payment, as we see here. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven." If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven. So we've got to keep in mind once again, after reading all of that, that the whole purpose of the laws were for the good of the people. It would provide these boundaries, which would actually make them more aware of their sin so that they wouldn't be able to one day say, well, I didn't know, or I wasn't sure of what I was supposed to do. It's just like a parent constantly reminding their children, don't do that. Don't go there. So that hopefully one day their children will learn, I probably shouldn't do that. I probably shouldn't go there. So let's take a look at some of our deep dive questions. What parallels or lessons can you draw from these offerings? What significance do the roles of Aaron and his sons play? How does that translate to modern worship? What would a pleasing aroma to the Lord look like today? And what might a modern-day grain offering be? Can you see the different symbolic meanings behind these elements and offerings? So, Heavenly Father, I pray that we will always approach you with reverence. May we understand the seriousness of sin and what it does to our relationship with you. We know that the wages of sin is death. And while you paid for that, Jesus, sin will still begin to slowly eat away at us if we do not deal with it. 
And so I pray that you will do your convicting work today, Holy Spirit, so that we can get right before you as a living sacrifice. We know it'll cost us something, but that pales in comparison to what it cost you. So I thank you for what you've done. We can cry all day over birds and lambs. And so I pray that we understand the gravity of your sacrifice. You were perfect. You didn't have to do it, but you loved us enough to lay your life down. And we thank you, Jesus. I pray that we will see and understand what this all means to us personally and how we too are called to be obedient still today. May we never treat your holiness as something casual. And may everything we do and say be a sweet aroma to you. We know that you accept us as we are and that we do not need to work to earn salvation. But we also recognize that relationships do take work. And the natural response to your grace and your mercy is to desire to honor you in all that we do. So I pray that we will lay it all down before the altar. No half-hearted obedience here. And I thank you for making a way for all of us to be able to worship you. I pray that every day when we wake up, we acknowledge that you have given us another gift of a day in this life. I pray that we will bring our own grain offering of gratitude, knowing that every good gift comes from above. You give us breath. You give us life, food and shelter and joy and peace. You give us our families and our jobs. It all comes from you. So I pray that every aspect of our lives will be anointed by the oil of your Holy Spirit and being offered up in prayer constantly. I pray that we always bring the best of ourselves, offering you the finest of what we have, putting on our Sunday best and ensuring that it is indeed fit for a king. Thank you for the gift of the covenant, one that is pure and enduring, full of grace and healing and the kindness of a friend. I pray that we will be that for others as well, that we will season everything we do with salt and grace. Even the most mundane of tasks or the ordinary things in life, I pray that we will see them for the gift that they are. So thank you, Jesus, for being our perfect peace offering. Because of what you have done, we are able to enjoy this life with a sense of wholeness and completeness and soundness and true spiritual health. Wherever any of us are lacking in any of those areas, God, I pray that we will continue to seek you as the source of our peace and not something else. We believe in the power of deliverance from depression, anxiety, worry, loneliness, and rejection. So I pray that your Holy Spirit will infiltrate our minds and hearts today so that we can enjoy every waking moment with you and as we go throughout our entire lives. So we love you and we thank you so much for this word today and for bringing it new meaning. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death and every single one of us have fallen short. And then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because he loves us and he wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I wanna be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm gonna end up after I die but I don't wanna live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. 
So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer. And I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.